Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you and help you get connected here. Like John was saying, uh, small groups is a great way to do that. I also encourage you, check out uh, the serving website. Uh, we're always looking for people to serve in all kinds of different ways and shapes here at River City. And so you can find all that info at rivercitydbq.org serving if you're interested in that. And you can reach out to me uh, and I'll follow up with you and we can have a chat about that. Uh, so we'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. We'd also love to invite you into a brand new series. Uh, we're beginning this week in the book of Titus together. If you were with us the last couple of weeks, we uh, did a short series to begin the year talking all about what the Bible has to say about money. And I trust that that was helpful and good for you as we began our year that way, thinking about being stewards of our, the resources that God's entrusted us, stewards who are wise, who, who are uh, generous, and who are dependent on God. God. And so I want to encourage you, if you missed some of that or you want to go back and listen to that, you can find that on our website or wherever you get podcasts. You can just search River City Dubuque and you'll find that there. I also want to encourage you, if there was an area, as we were talking about those things, that you felt like you needed some help in, that you wanted to think about growing in, I want to encourage you, reach out to your small group leader, reach out to Aaron or I, or like I mentioned, Dave Clark, and we'd love to help you take some next steps as you think about growing as a steward of God's resources. But... Like I mentioned, this morning we're diving into a new series that we're in, in the book of Titus. And Titus is, is a book in the New Testament that's known as an epistle, which means that although we refer to it as a book, uh, it's actually a letter. And Titus is actually a pretty unique letter in the grand scheme of things because instead of being written to a, a, a church as a whole or a group of Christians throughout a region, uh, Titus is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to just one guy. It was written to a guy named Titus, believe it or not, right? Hence the name. I know the Bible, like, they're so creative in naming the books, right? You see, Titus was one of Paul's most trusted ministry partners and fellow pastors and church planters. We'll, re we'll see this uh, in our passage this week, but Titus was like a son to Paul. Uh, someone who Paul had led to faith and who had, he had trained up in ministry. By the time of the writing of this letter, though, they've been making disciples together for well over a decade by this point. And when you look at the way that Paul talks about Titus and his writings to other churches, you get the really distinct impression that Titus was the guy that Paul trusted with the really challenging ministry assignments, right? Well, Paul brings Silas with him to Thessalonica, a really encouraging ministry place. He sends Timothy, <coughs> excuse me, he sends Timothy to the well-established and relatively healthy church in Ephesus. But when he needs somebody to deal with the problems in Corinth, or the issues going on in Galatia, he, he taps Titus. He sends Titus on those projects, on those missions. And yet, as challenging as those ministry assignments were, what becomes pretty clear as you read this letter is that the reason why Paul's written to Titus this time is because he's actually just given him his most challenging ministry assignment yet. We find out in verse 5 that Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete. Now, I don't know about you, but Crete sounds like a great Mediterranean vacation spot to me, right? Like, I could get on, I could get on the team of visiting Crete, right? It seems like they'd probably have some great beaches and maybe some tapas, right? Like, I, I, can, be on, I can be on that team, right? But that is definitely not the way that Paul and countless other ancient and modern historians alike thought about Crete. You see, Crete was infamous 
for being one of the most dangerous and immoral places in the world at the time. The, the island cities were plagued by violence and sexual corruption. The ancient historian Polybius, he, he wrote that, he said, it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero, another ancient historian, he added, their moral principles were so divergent that the Cretans considered highway robbery to be honorable. And we'll see in a couple weeks, uh, Paul totally agrees with these ancient historians. In verse 12 through 13, he, he quotes one of their own prophets who said that Cretans were always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Right? That term Cretan, it was actually a slang term that meant a liar. Right? And so top it all off, the chief export, the chief occupation of Crete was to be a mercenary soldier, basically a Mediterranean pirate, right? They were notoriously treacherous and greedy. And so that, what that meant is that, like, like, when you think about Crete, you should think about, like, you know, like that island of Tortuga in the Pirates of Caribbean movies, right? Like, that's Crete, right? It's just like, it is not a place you want to be. But in spite of all the sin and corruption Crete was known for, the Apostle Paul, he saw the island as this really strategic location for, it was like this perfect outpost for gospel ministry throughout the Mediterranean region. And so he and Titus, in spite of all that he knew was true about that, they, they go together and begin the work of preaching the gospel and planting churches and calling people to faith in Jesus. And we see that there's fruit for that, but before things have gotten really established, Paul had been called away on other ministry assignments, some other important ministry things that he had been called to do. And as you might expect, based on the context I've just kind of given you for the island of Crete and the fact that Paul had to leave before things got really established, is that things weren't going especially great. Right? Things weren't going especially great in the churches in the island of Crete. Instead of living as countercultural lights for Christ in the darkness of Crete, we find that many of the lives of the people who had claimed to become Christians, they really just didn't look much different than any other pagan neighbors around them. See, and that really needed to change because the great commission that Jesus gives his, his followers is not to go, therefore, and make converts, but to go, therefore, and make disciples. Right, people who follow and who worship Jesus with attitudes and actions that reflect him, not just, not just head-level beliefs about him. See, and that brings us to the, the central theme of all the instructions that we're going to see Paul giving Titus in this short letter. We're going to be in this study for just maybe six weeks or so in the course of the three chapters. And what we're going to see is that there's this phrase that comes up repeatedly in these in these three chapters, seven times in three chapters, there's this phrase. Let me, let, me, let me read a few, see if you can catch it. Chapter 1, verse 8, Paul instructs Timothy or Titus that when he's appointing elders, they should be people who love what is good. In chapter 1, verse 16, the, the bad leaders that are, you know, that are hurting the church and creator now, they're unfit for doing anything good. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the older women in the church are to teach what is good. In chapter 2, verse 7, in everything Titus does, he's to set an example of doing what is good. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's told to remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. In chapter 3, verse 8, he's to stress God's grace and mercy so that those who have trusted in God might be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says that our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Did you, did you spot it? That's yeah, goodness, right? 
See, the main thing that Paul wants Titus to spend his, him, his time doing in Crete is to help the Christians on the island of Crete to be increasingly characterized by loving, being, doing, and teaching what is good. And if we're honest with ourselves, that seems like a pretty lame ministry assignment, right? Like, hey, go help some pirates be good, right? You know, like, that's gonna, like, that just really sounds exciting, doesn't it? Right, we, we don't really get, a, it's, it's like, we just don't get that excited about being good, right? Just like, think about the songs that people write, right? Nobody's praising people for being the good guy, right? Right, nobody's singing, I'm good to the bone, right? Like, that's not, that's not the songs that get written, right? And yet, ironically, if you ask people, most people assume, and most people will tell you, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. See, I think a lot of the reason why goodness just seems like this boring afterthought or kind of like a given assumption and, is that we have a pretty anemic understanding of what goodness is really all about. You see, we often associate goodness with just like walking an old lady across the street, right? Or just like not getting into trouble. I don't know if you, like you remember if you're growing up, right? Mom leaves you at home for a little while. She says, be good while I'm gone, right? She comes back, she asks you, were you good? And you're like, I, don't, I mean, I didn't start a fire, like... None of my siblings are currently injured, so like, yes, I mean, kind of, like, I mean, kind of think about it, I didn't really do much of anything at all, right? See, but that's not the kind of goodness that Paul wants Titus to instill in these Cretan Christians. See, the kind of goodness he's talking about is not just a passive absence of bad behavior. Instead, it's the kind of goodness that Paul wants Titus to instill in them is the active pursuit of all that is right and true and good. He wants goodness to characterize their external actions and their internal heart-level motivations. See, the kind of goodness Paul's after is is an all-encompassing kind of transformation. And over the course of this letter, we're going to see a number of specific areas of our lives where, like the Christians in Crete, we're called to grow in being and doing and loving and teaching what is good. But in the end, what it's all going to boil down to, what we're going to see is that the goodness that we're called to be characterized is ultimately about being more like God himself. Psalm chapter 136 verse 1 says it this way, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. In Psalm 119, verse 68, it adds this, says, you are good, and you do, and you do, what you do is good, God. You see, to be good, then, is fundamentally to be like God, to be more like him. What that means, though, is that like, as we read this letter, what you're going to find is that Paul uses the words goodness and godliness kind of interchangeably, Right? And so as we take a look at the opening verses of Paul's letter to Titus this morning, we're gonna, what we're going to see is that growth in, growth in goodness, right? growth in godliness, it's not just the goal of Titus' ministry in Crete. See, growth in goodness and godliness, that's the goal of all gospel ministry. In other words, it's not just what Titus was supposed to be concerned with 2,000 years ago. It's what you and I and every Christian in every age is to be concerned with every day and as we think about growing in godliness, we're gonna, this morning we're going to see the formula for it, we're going to see the hope that empowers it, and we're going to see the message that begins it. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into this new letter 
see if we can't think about what it means to make some pirates good here, right? God, we're so grateful for you. We're thankful, Jesus, as we come to your word, uh, that at the heart of a letter that's all about becoming people who are growing in godliness, who are growing in being and thinking and doing what is good. God, we're just so grateful that like the end goal isn't just about like being better people. But as we'll see this morning, it's about responding to you and the good news of the gospel that empowers that in us. And so as we study this morning, as we think about the calling to be a people who are all about growing in godliness, growing in goodness, we ask you, Lord Jesus, might you be helping us to see the gospel as our power and motivation for it. And so we need you for that, God. Uh, we pray that you'd be empowering our time together to that end. In your good name we pray. Amen. All right, well, like I mentioned, we're going to be just in the first couple of verses of the book of Titus. It begins this way in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of, our, of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, like I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to see throughout this letter that the, the main thing that Paul wants Titus to focus on in Crete is helping the Christians there to grow in goodness, to grow in godliness. And what we're going to see right away in verse 1 is that that growth in goodness, that wasn't just the aim of Titus's ministry, that was the aim of Paul's ministry as well. See, the letter begins with Paul reminding Titus about his own identity and calling in verse 1, Paul says this, he says that he's Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle means sent one. So what's Paul been sent to do? What's the, what's the goal of his life and ministry? He says to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that what? Leads to godliness. You see, the goal of Paul's ministry isn't just to like get people converted to faith in Jesus. Right? It's to help them become more like Jesus. In other words, Paul wasn't focused on making converts. He was focused on making disciples. Right? People who don't just believe in Jesus. They don't just have like a head-level understanding about what he, who he is or what he's done. But whose faith in him is changing them. Whose faith in him is transforming their lives and causing them to look more like Jesus. What we see in verse 1 is that the formula that leads to godliness, the, the pattern that produces godliness, is faith plus knowledge of the truth. Faith plus knowledge in the truth. And it's really important that you see this. You see, Paul's aim is that people would grow in godliness. Right? They, they would grow in looking more like God in the way that they act and think and relate to one another. But what the formula for godliness makes clear is that th this goal isn't just about getting people to conform to some external morality. As we'll see next week, when Paul talks to Titus this, about setting things in order in these churches, he's not just telling him, like, get them in line, right? Like, set them back on the straight and narrow. See, what Paul's concerned with is an internal transformation of the heart and of the mind that inevitably leads to external transformation in people's lives. 
See, the formula for godliness begins with furthering the faith of God's elect. In other words, helping people to grow in their faith. And what is faith, right? Well, faith is trust, right? It's dependence, it's, it's reliance. See, growth in godliness begins with people who God's chosen to reveal himself to growing in their faith in him, right? Increasing their trust in him, increasing their reliance on him, increasing their, their dependence on him. And so the question is, how does that happen, right? Is that just like, do you just kind of like wish for that, right? Is that by telling people like, hey, like your faith is at level two, you need to get to level four, right? Like, is, it, like, is that how you do it? No, the way that you grow in faith, the way that you grow in trust and reliance and dependence on God is when you grow in your knowledge and your understanding of who he really is. See, when you grow in the truth about him, that's the second part of the formula that Paul outlines for his ministry, right? In order to grow in the kind of faith in God that changes you, that produces godliness in you, Right, you've got to grow in your knowledge of who God really is. You've got to grow in the knowledge of the truth about him. And this idea is one of the other really central themes throughout the book of Titus, this contrast between what is true and what is false. And you get a glimpse of this here in verse 2 when Paul refers to God. He, he says, he's talking about God in verse 2 and he says that this God is a God who does not lie. And to you and I, that seems kind of like a duh statement, you know, like, like why, like, why, why do we need to add that? That seems like a base-level assumption, right? But that wouldn't have been the case for the people of Crete. You see, the gods they grew up believing in and worshiping, they lied all the time, right? One of their calling cards of their chief god, Zeus, was that he was a great liar, right? He was famously good at deceiving and tricking people, especially women who he was trying to seduce, right? It was like, this guy, this God, his calling card is that he's great at lying. And as you might expect, right, there's some pretty significant implications for believing that, right? Right. The first is that if Zeus was, a, Zeus was a God that you respected and feared, but not one that you trusted, right? You never took him at his word. You always assumed he had some ulterior motive, some self-centered, some self-centered thing that was driving what he was doing. He wasn't watching out for you. He wasn't watching out for your best interest. That was your job. Your job was to watch out for yourself. And when you worship a God like that, what happens is you become like that, right? See, the Cretans, they didn't see lying as a problem to be solved, to the Cretans, they saw lying as an art form to be mastered, right? Like that's, that's how your whole country, right? Gets the, like you're, you become a slang word for being a liar, right? Because that's the thing they thought was great. We're going to get real good at that, right? The better you get at lying, the better off you'll be. What happened was that the Cretans had just kind of assimilated their understanding of what Zeus was like into their understanding of what the God of the Bible was like. But Paul says, throughout his teaching, throughout his writing, he says, no, that is not what's true at all about God. God is not a manipulative liar who is trying to take advantage of you. The God of the Bible is a good God who tells the truth and who keeps his promises. He's a God who's not trying to get something from you. Instead, he's a God who's trying to give something to you. So that leads us to the second thing that we see about growing in godliness, so the passage highlights for us the hope that empowers that kind of godly life. 
See, the goal of Paul's ministry is to further the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. He goes on in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. See, the true God, he says, is not like Zeus. See, Zeus used fear and uncertainty and deception to get people to do things for him and to meet his own needs. But, But this God, in keeping with his promises, gives himself to meet our needs and to give us the kind of hope that empowers a life that's lived in response to him both now and forever, right? It's this hope of eternal life. Let me just clarify, though, for a minute, because when you and I tend to think about eternal life, we, we tend to think about just like a life that doesn't end. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about like this hope in a potential future reward for having lived a good life now. Right? Like that, that's not what he's talking about. And we know that's the case because Paul doesn't use the Greek word bios when he's talking about eternal life, he, which refers to physical life and existence. He uses the Greek word zoe which is not about a physical existence, it's about a quality of life. It refers to a life that is full and full of joy, a life that is full of abundance. You see, the hope that we have that empowers us to grow in godliness, it's not about trusting in a a promise of life in the future that won't end. It's about being sure that the God who died so that we might receive the gift of life he promised us today will keep his promises to bring that true and abundant life we experience in part now to completion in eternity. See, what happens when your faith in the truth about God leads to godliness in our lives, empowered by this confident hope of eternal life that begins now, that we experience in part now, that that we have the hope that goes on into eternity, is that we become people who proclaim the good news of that hope-filled life so that others might be changed by it too. But we don't just live it, we, we speak about it, we tell about it. Verse 3, Paul writes that, that God brings the good news of this life-transforming, hope-filled faith in Jesus to light so that people can see it and believe it, he says in verse 3, through the preaching that's been entrusted to him by Jesus. He goes on in 2 Corinthians to help us see that that's not just something he's been entrusted with, but something we've all been entrusted with. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5 about how God's entrusted with Christians the good news of the gospel, that he's made us ambassadors of his message of reconciliation. See, what that means is that while the life-transforming good news of the gospel is made possible by Jesus, it means it's made visible by you and me as we speak it. As we proclaim the truth about who he is and what he's done and call people to put their faith in him so that they might be changed by him. In his commentary on on Titus, Jim Tester, he puts it this way. He says, on a cold day you can see your breath. It forms a cloud in the air. and It's almost as if something like this is happening when we share the gospel. With spiritual eyesight, we see Jesus himself taking shape. He appears and people meet him in our words as we tell others about him. God's eternal promises enter history and Jesus becomes clear. Listen, church, God is the one who's doing the saving. He's the one who does all the transforming But the way he has chosen to bring that life-transforming salvation to light in the world is by commissioning those who've seen it. 
those who've experienced it, to be agents who proclaim that good news to others. And I know how scary and overwhelming that can feel, but I want to call you back to the goodness of the proclamation that Paul says he's been entrusted with and that we have been entrusted with. See, the message that we get to proclaim is not one about a self-centered, duplicitous deity who people should fear or respect. See, the good news of the gospel is instead the good news of a God who keeps his promises to save people and to offer them real life both now and forever, not based on the good things that they have done, not based on how godly they can prove themselves to be in this life, but as we'll see in Titus 3, because of his mercy and his grace in spite of our utter lack of godliness in the first place. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he puts it this way, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans chapter 4, he says it this way, that God credits faith as righteousness to those who do not work, but who trust God to justify the ungodly. See, church, the, the good news of the gospel is not that there's a list of rules that you need to measure up to, but it's that there is a good God who has come to rescue ungodly people and to transform them, transform them by his great grace and mercy into a people who could not otherwise change and instead be, reflect his goodness in their lives. See, that's the good news of the gospel. Not that you have something to bring to the table, but that you are helpless and the great God of the universe comes in the midst of all your rebellion to change you and make you new. See, and that message is what we celebrate and remember every week when we take communion. Communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change your status or your standing with Him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember that His body and blood were broken and shed as the ultimate proof that He keeps His promises, that He saves those who put their trust in Him. And so this morning, if you put your trust in Jesus or you do for the first time, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. And you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of God's grace made known to you in Jesus. That in the midst of all your powerlessness, in the midst of all your ungodliness, the great perfect God of the universe might come to make you right with him. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're still figuring out what following him means, and you're not sure if he's a God that you, that you can trust, let alone that you want to, and I want to encourage you, you are welcome here. And you're going to see in Titus, and what I hope you see in the people of God here at this church is the people who reflect a God who is trustworthy, one who is full of life and goodness, one who offers that kind of life to you. But I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're still figuring that out, I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after religious rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's not after just doing the things. He's not trying to get some external moral conformity out of you. He wants to give you new life through faith in him that transforms you from the inside out. And so communion might not be right for you, but Jesus is and River City is, and we want to help you know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we sing, as we take communion, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. 
Growth in godliness, that's the heart of this letter. It's the heart of Paul's ministry. It's the heart of Titus's ministry. It's the heart of all gospel ministry. Growth in godliness, it doesn't begin with knowing a list of rules that you need to keep. It begins with putting your faith in the truth about God. And I want to encourage you this morning, I want to ask you, where are you putting your faith? Where are you putting your faith? Is it in the knowledge of the truth about God that leads you to becoming more like him? Or is it in a lie that leads you away from him? The truth is, you can always tell by what you do. I was listening to another pastor's sermon this week on this passage, and he said something that really stuck out to me. He said, we often believe in God, but we act like we believe in Zeus. He says, we often say we believe in God, but we act like we believe in Zeus. Right, we say we believe in a God who doesn't lie, who doesn't change, but we, but we act like Right? We act like we believe in a God that we're not sure if we can really trust. Right? We, we act like we doubt that he'll come through for us, and so we're characterized by fear and anxiety. Right? We say we believe in a God that is true, but we act like we believe in a lie. Right? We say we believe in a God who is good, who has our best interest in mind, but we tend to try to bargain with God because we think we need to manipulate him into giving us what we want. We say, God, I'll, give, I'll do X for you if you do Y for me. It's a barter system, and we try to manipulate God into being good instead of trusting that he is a good father who always gives us what we need and will withhold from us what will harm us. See, if we're going to be a people right, whose lives proclaim the goodness of God, and who offer forth to people a hope of eternal life. right? Not just a life that doesn't end, but a life that is full now. Right, we're going to need to be a people whose lives reflect what's true about him. Who don't say we believe in God, but act like we believe in Zeus. See, when we do that, we hamstring our witness to a watching world. But when our lives increasingly reflect the good God who has saved us, what happens is we affirm the message he's given us to proclaim, that all those who put their faith in him, they receive the hope of eternal life, a kind of life that begins now as we experience, as we're transformed into the image of his son, as we grow in godliness a kind of life that will go on into eternity where we will become in full the people he's made us to be from the beginning. And so to that end, let's pray, church. Lord God, we are so grateful for you. And as we gather to begin a new book together, as we think about these words, uh, Paul's words to Titus, we pray, Lord Jesus, would you cause us to be a people who's lo who long to further the faith of your elect, the further the faith of those you've chosen to reveal yourself to, that we might grow in knowledge of the truth that leads us to godly lives, that leads us to look more like you, that we be fueled by the hope we have of eternal life that comes from you, and that we be a people who proclaim that goodness of life both now and forever so that others might be changed by it. We pray. Amen.